0: Welcome to the 24-week lecture series by Dr. Avraham Giliati: Dreams, Visions, and Near-Death Experiences Compared to the End-Time Prophecy of Isaiah. This is Lecture 8, Book of Mormon Prophecies from Isaiah. Okay, um, this evening we're going to discuss how the Book of Mormon uses the prophecies of Isaiah to predict its end-time scenario. And whenever they do predict predict the end time scenario, they always use Isaiah as a basis for um, predicting what they predict. They will start with Isaiah, new ones, different parts of it, or illustrate, or interpret, or augment, or something. But Isaiah is where they where they start and finish. And there are a number of kind of motifs from the book of Isaiah that they draw on specifically, and will repeat over and over. They use Isaiah's technique of introducing these ideas and segments of their end time scenario kind of piecemeal domino fashion. Same as you have a domino piece that connects with other domino pieces, you'll have two or three different, a combination of two or three different events and then over here you have a different combination but one of them will be the same as the one you had before and so on. It just builds in about 14 different instances, you have these domino pieces scattered throughout the Book of Mormon, mainly given by Nephi, Jacob, and Jesus. First Nephi, second Nephi, and third Nephi. And it's only when you put all of these domino pieces together and connect them all up, or like a puzzle, then this scenario becomes clear. Without that, without searching and connecting the dots, connecting the pieces, you're just going to have one little piece here one little piece there. And, and if you're in the proof texting mode, as many LDS are and Christians are, as against the analytical, analytical approach of the Jews, then you know, you're just going to take things out of context. And you maybe you're running with an idea that has no scriptural basis, a precept of men in other words, that has no scriptural foundation because it's, you haven't connected with all the other domino pieces. So this is the key then to understanding what these um, references from Isaiah are all about and they include the greater marvelous work which we're going to discuss tonight and and basically they define what the greater marvelous work is. So we start off with Isaiah 11 10 through 12 and 16. Now take note of the wording, always take note of the wording of course, but this this scripture here is basically going to be built upon by many other scriptures throughout the Book of Mormon, both by Nephi, Jacob, and Jesus. In that day, the Sprig of Jesse, who stands for an ensign to the people, shall be sought by the nations. So he is, he is that ensign. And an ensign is something that rallies people, in this case, to the Lord's cause, or to the establishment of Zion. There are two ensigns in the Book of Isaiah, and both of them are persons, people. The other one is the king of Assyria, or the Antichrist. The king of Babylon is one of his names, who represents um, a person who draws toward him an alliance of evil nations that basically seeks to and does conquer the entire world and seeks to destroy God's people, Zion, in a kind of a end-time showdown. So the spring of Jesse, who stands for an ensign to the peoples, to the peoples of the world at large, because now Israel is scattered throughout the world shall be sought by the nations, or the Gentiles, and his rest shall be glorious. His rest is referring to him coming into the rest of the Lord, which is the fullness of his glory, and that's part of his exaltation. In that day, my Lord, will again... In that day is the day of judgment. It's a a a three-and-a-half-year period, literally, or perhaps a seven-year period, because it has a prelude. In that day my Lord will again raise his hand, the King James um, translates it, raise his hand the second time, to reclaim the remnant of his, or set his, set his hand the second time, to reclaim the remnant, the remnant of his people, the remnant of his people, not everybody. Those who shall be left, again the idea of a remnant, out of Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamat, and the islands of the sea, In other words, from all over the world. He will raise the ensign to the nations and assemble the exiled of Israel. He will gather the scattered of Judah from the four directions of the earth. Now, Israel is the ten-tribe kingdom and the Jews are Judah. So this is a universal gathering of God's covenant people. As distinct from what's happening today or what has been happening today, What has been happening up till now has been the gathering of Ephraim as the prophets of the Restoration informed us. In the uh, Journal of Discourses you find that, and that is indeed what is happening, because many of the tribe of Ephraim have gathered so that they can then perform their birthright role of being a savior to the other members of the House of Israel. In other words, the natural energies of the House of Israel. At some point, it turns to them, as we'll see tonight. So, the Lord uses this ensign. and we have the idea, well, the gospel is an ensign to the nations. Yes, but that's not Isaiah's definition. You have to stay with Isaiah's definition. And you see in verse 10 that this person, the sprig or the root of Jesse, or the graft of Jesse is another translation, he's the ensign. You see that in verse 10, and then you have the raising to the ensign again in verse 12, in parallel with raising the hand in verse 11. So, the hand and the ensign are two synonymous terms because in each verse 11 and 12 it deals with the gathering of God's covenant people and so once you have the idea that one person that that this person is one of these things then also you can say well he's also the hand and indeed there are two hands in the book of Isaiah there are two end signs one is the hand of deliverance in this case the sprig of Jesse and the other is the hand of punishment the king of Assyria so again, you have this consistency in the way Isaiah, Isaiah uses these metaphors or aliases. And the effect of the servant's mission, he's the servant all through Isaiah, the of Jesse, is that Israel will gather in an end-time exodus to Zion. There shall be a pathway out of Assyria, same chapter, for the remnant of his people, the same remnant, who shall be left as there was for Israel when it came up from the land of Egypt. So a new exodus, like the ancient exodus out of Egypt, but now from where? Well from the four directions as we saw in verse twelve and from all these nations in verse eleven, same thing. Then we have a clue to what a little bit of what that's talking about in, in dNC 113. What is the root of Jesse or the sprig of Jesses' or the graft of Jesse depends how you translate it in context. The King James translates its roots so the, the, the LDS scriptures including the Book of Mormon, stay with the King James, not because it's the best translation, but because it was the extent translation of the time, and it would have caused more problems to translate it anew, because everybody understood the King James in, in the days of Joseph Smith. So there are reasons why it uses the King James. What is the root of Jesse spoken of in the 10th verse of the 11th chapter? That's of Isaiah. It is uh, the senate of Jesse as well as of Joseph, so, in other words, mostly of Jesse, but also of Joseph. Uh, of Jesse, of course, that's also a code name. And Jesse was the father of King David. And I'm not going to get into the code names and what, how this, what this symbolizes or signifies, because it's a little bit esoteric. Um, but you may have your guesses. And we know whose descendants are the ones who are doing the work of salvation in the end time unto whom rightly belongs the priesthood, and unto whom rightly belongs the priesthood, and the keys of the kingdom, so both priesthood and kingship, and the keys thereof, for an ensign and for the gathering of my people in the last days, the gathering of my people, that is my covenant people, the covenant formula. So we have a summary now of what we just read in these two passages of Scripture. That is, the Lord gathers the exiles of Israel and scattered of Judah in a new exodus when he sets his hand again the second time or as I translated when the Lord raises again his hand by raising up an end-time descendant of Jesse whom Isaiah identifies in an ABA chiasm as his hand of deliverance and is ensigned to the nations. The ABA chiasm is Verse 10, ensign, B, the hand, verse 11, and A, verse 12, the ensign. Ensign, hand, ensign. It's a a chiasm, with the central idea being the Lord's hand of deliverance in, in verse 11, who delivers the remnant of the Lord's people out of exile or dispersion. Now we go to chapter 49 of Isaiah, where we again see the idea of a hand, an ensign, in parallel, just as we did earlier. Thus is my Lord Jehovah, I will lift up my hand to the nations. Now remember the hand in this case, in Isaiah's context, is the Lord's servant, or the son, the descendant of Jesse. I will lift up my hand to the nations, and raise my ensign to the people, the same person, a synonymous, um, a synonymous parallel. And they will bring your sons in their bosoms, and carry your daughters on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, queens your nursing mothers. So, in other words, when the servant is empowered, the Lord lifts him up or sustains him or raises him up. The kings and queens of the Gentiles who, are, who come out of, the, um, who come out of the Ephraim, who come out of the Gentiles, as we see um, all throughout the scriptures, and in the Book of Mormon we'll see that, they are the ones who actually do the work of bringing the house of Israel back in this exodus. So, But it's initiated with the servant, and then the kings and queens of the Gentiles assist in bringing it about. And this is also you know, discoursed upon in 2 Nephi 6 and other scriptures that we're going to discuss now. But we've basically laid a groundwork for what we're going to discuss today. Remember... It's the Lord setting his hand or raising his hand again the second time. And remember the, that and the exodus in the context of the servant or this person who's identified as the hand of the Lord, the hand of deliverance, versus the hand of punishment, the Antichrist, and the ensign to the nations, which is a righteous ensign that gathers the remnant. Verse 5, And now the words which I shall read are they which Isaiah spake concerning all the house of Israel, not about the Gentiles, about the house of Israel with whom they are most concerned because these are their descendants and their, their covenant people. Wherefore they may be likened unto you, for ye are of the house of Israel. And as I analyze all through you know, my writings, I've, I've come to the absolute conclusion that members of the church are never identified as the house of Israel, as in the Book of Mormon, as. As many people think we are, but there's no grounds for that because you can analyze it yourself. It's in my book, The Last Days, where I do a thorough analysis, thorough analysis of that. But we have a role to play as ministers to the house of Israel and savers to them to bring them back into the Lord's covenant. That's our birthright role. We have two options, either to fulfill that birthright role or to become of savers on, to, to the house of Israel or to be a salt. That has lost its savour, as it says in the Doctrine and Covenants. Wherefore they may be likened unto you, for you the house of Israel, and there are many things which have been spoken by Isaiah which may be likened unto you, because ye are of the house of Israel. And now these are the words: Thus said the Lord God: Behold, he's quoting now from Isaiah 49, which we just read, 22 and 23. I will lift up my hand to the to the Gentiles or the nations. It's uh, it's a different translation, but. Gentiles are also translated nations, and set up my standard. Uh, the King James now translates the word <coughs> nes as sometimes as ensign, sometimes as standard, and sometimes as banner. So the King James is inconsistent, and here <coughs> the translator has chosen to use the word standard, but the Hebrew word is the same as the word ensign. And, of course, in Isaiah 49, these two terms, the hand and the ensign, appear in parallel. I set up my standard <clears throat> to the people, or peoples, it's plural, and they shall bring thy sons in their arms, and thy daughters shall be carried upon their shoulders. And kings shall be thy nursing fathers, and queens thy nursing mothers. All right? So it keeps confirming what we just read previously, and all these domino pieces do that. And they build upon each other, and you have to, you have to interpret Isaiah and in the Book of Mormon in the context of, this, of building this argument, so to speak of building this premise, this puzzle, this, this picture. And you cannot go outside and say, well, we've always been taught this, or this person says this, that. We can't go there. We have to take this in its own context. And if you, if you don't do that, then you're resting the Scriptures, or going back to your old paradigm that is not bringing forth good fruit, as it says in Jacob 5. When the Lord raises up His hand and ensign, this is a summary now, His end-time servant... The hand and the end sign. The spiritual kings and queens of the Gentiles gather Israel and Judah. So they are assisting in the gathering. And when you take this to other scriptures, you see that it's the 144,000, the servants in Jacob 5, uh, the saviors on Mount Zion and Obadiah, and the, the servants in the latter part of the book of Isaiah. They're all the same servants, the kings and queens of the Gentiles. And behold, according to the words of the prophet, that's Isaiah, the Messiah will set himself again the second time to recover them or to restore them. He will manifest himself unto them in power and great glory unto the destruction of their enemies when that day cometh when they shall believe in him and none will he destroy that believe in him. And they that believe not in him shall be destroyed both by fire and by tempest and by earthquakes and by bloodsheds and by pestilence, by famine. And they shall know that the Lord is God the Holy One of Israel. Who will know? Well, the house of Israel will, because they haven't always known that, because their God seems to have abandoned them out there in exile. Now notice here that at the very time that the Lord is setting His hand again the second time to recover them, to restore them, that is the time of the destruction of their enemies. It's the great reversal of circumstances that happened between Zion and Babylon, between the saints of the Lord, I mean truly the holy ones of the Lord who are fulfilling this role, the kings and queens of the Gentiles, and those who are choosing to oppose this work, including some of their own number, who who in the end begin to, to oppose it and fight them. So you cannot separate that this gathering or restoration of the House of Israel, the natural lineages of the House of Israel, you cannot separate that from the destruction of their enemies that's happening simultaneously. You can't say, well, this is happen- this, uh, that was in the time of Joseph Smith, da-da-da. No, it didn't happen in the time of Joseph Smith. None of this does. This is all an end-time scenario, as you made, you know, uh, clearly aware when you put all these pieces together. So, summary. At the time the Lord gathers the exiles of Israel and scattered of Judah, when he sets his hand again the second time to restore his people, then is the time that the house of Israel believes in him and that he destroys their enemies. Another motif, besides the one of the Lord setting his hand the second time, is the Lord bearing his holy arm. From Isaiah 52, we read, Hark, ye watchmen lift up their voices when they cry out for joy, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord returns to Zion. Or when the Lord restores Zion, is another interpretation. The Jehovah, The Lord is Jehovah, all through Isaiah. Jehovah has bared his holy arm in the eyes of all nations, that all the ends of the earth may see our God's salvation." So this is again the mission of the Lord's servant. He's the arm, the arm of the deliverance, the, the arm that intervenes in the affairs of God's people to deliver them. There are two arms in the book of Isaiah, only this, the other arm is not the Antichrist or King of Assyria, the other arm is Jehovah himself. There are the two arms, one is called or personifies righteousness, the other is called and personifies salvation. Salvation is the Lord, The servant is called righteousness, chapter 41, verse 2. It's one of his names. The name Jehovah actually, uh, the name Jesus, excuse me, actually means salvation also. And Isaiah calls Jehovah salvation by that noun in other parts of the book of Isaiah. Break out altogether into song you ruined places of Jerusalem. Jehovah has comforted his people, he has redeemed Jerusalem. Those verses are reversed because they seem to structurally be displaced because these there's 21 verses in chapter 14 that are the antith- antithesis of 21 verses in chapters 52 and 53, and that helps in un- understanding, putting things in a little better sequence here in chapter 52. So, the arm is the, is the Lord, and he's going to bear him, he's going to unravel him. He's been he's kept secret, he's been covered over. Nobody knows anything about him. And those who think they know, don't know, usually. And we have to go with how Isaiah defines this person, or identifies this person, through a series of synonymous parallels that we've seen with the hand and the ensign. If he says in one instance, he parallels... The, if he, in one instance, he identifies his servant as the person called righteousness, and in another instance, in a synonymous parallel, he, def, he parallels righteousness with the Lord's hand, and another one, his mighty arm you know, then you know you're on the right track. It's the person. And you also know that from the next verse. I mean, next, uh, next scripture that we're going to read. Turn away, depart, touch nothing defile to as you leave Babylon. This is continuing, continuing on from chapter, 50, in chapter 52. Turn away, depart, touch nothing defile to as you leave Babylon. Come out of her and be pure, you who bear the Lord's vessels. These are the kings and queens of the Gentiles carrying in their arms the Lord's vessels, or the Lord's children or the House of Israel as the Israelites brought vessels to the House of the Lord in pilgrimage anciently so they are bringing the sons and daughters of the House of Israel to Zion they're bringing them and that is like their offering that was anciently contained in the vessels that they brought to the temple as offerings to the Lord but you shall not leave in haste or go in flight Jehovah will go before you the God of Israel behind you that is Exodus imagery Because as we saw in chapter 11, they're going to come home in an exodus and the kings and queens of the Gentiles are going to bring them. Chapter 51. Awake, arise, clothe yourself with power, O arm of Jehovah. So it's a person in the book of Isaiah. You can trace it all the way to the servant again. And he has to awake and arise. So is he going to be dead? Because that's resurrection imagery. Well, no, he doesn't die, but he's marred horribly. And he's caught up to God and to his throne in the book of Revelation when the woman Zion gives birth to him before the dragon can, give, can destroy him. But he is marred and then the Lord heals him, uh, which we read in thirty-five twenty-one. Awaken, Awake and arise and being clothed with power parallels Zion's awakening and arising at the beginning of chapter 52. Zion-Jerusalem category awakens and arises. When? Well, when the servant awakens and arises. So when he comes to the fore, when he begins his mission, is empowered of God, then he empowers Zion to come forth also. Bestir yourself as in ancient times, as in generations of old. We read this in connection with the servant before, but here it is in a different context because we are discussing the arm in relation to the Lord's bearing his arm in relation to the gathering of Israel in an exodus. Was it not you who carved up Rahab or Egypt, you who slew the dragon, that's Pharaoh? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the mighty deep, and made of ocean depths a way by which the redeemed might pass? Let the ransom of the Lord return. Let them come singing to Zion, their heads crowned with everlasting joy. Let them obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing flee away. So again, in Exodus context, when the Lord bears his arm, that is the time of the Exodus. When he empowers his arm, like Moses was empowered to bring Israel in an Exodus out of Egypt, so it repeats itself, the same pattern. Only this Exodus is out of all the world from the four directions. And it's going to be just as magnificent because he's going to have power over the elements, as Moses did. And it, it implies that this person, you know did the same thing as an angel in the time of Moses because the angel went before the camp and then the angel went through the Red Sea and Israel followed. So he led Israel then, he's going to lead Israel again in an exodus. And we see that in DNC 103, 15 through 20, where we are led back to Jackson County by one likened to Moses. Same thing in an exodus. That's as far as it concerns a lot of these saints. Jews, however, will be fleeing to the old Jerusalem, carried there in this exodus, because most Jews are still out in the world at large, so are the ten tribes. They're going to come to the New Jerusalem and the Lamanites from the south to the New Jerusalem. First Nephi 22. The Lord will proceed to make bare His arm in the eyes of all the nations. You begin to see all these domino pieces now coming together. In bringing about His covenants and His gospel and to those who are of the house of Israel, Wherefore, he will bring them again out of captivity, and they shall be gathered together to the lands of their inheritance, and they shall be brought out of obscurity and out of darkness. That's imagery that implies that they're going to be converted to the gospel. They're going to come into his marvelous light. It implies their conversion. And they shall know that the Lord is their Savior and their Redeemer. To know is to know for sure by personal revelation. The mighty one of Israel, and the blood of that great and abominable church, which is the whore of all the earth, shall turn upon their own heads, for they shall war among themselves, and the sword of their own hands shall fall upon them, their own heads, and they shall be drunken as with their own blood. Again, you have there the destruction motif or destruction of these wicked entities at the very time that this is going on. You have deliverance on the one hand and destruction on the other. The end time scenario is deliverance of the righteous and destruction of the wicked happening at the same time. We have never seen that before. We saw it in the flood when Noah was delivered and the world was destroyed, but we've never seen it nowadays. And then, it's now um, 35, 16, And then the words of Isaiah shall be fulfilled, which say, Thy watchman shall lift up the voice. We read that a moment ago in chapter 52 of Isaiah. With the voice together shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion. Break forth into, into joy, sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord hath comforted his people, he hath redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of, of the earth shall see the salvation of God. So putting all these pieces together thus far, in a summary, we say or what we've just read, the house of Israel comes out of obscurity and darkness and gathers in an exodus to the lands of their inheritance at the time the Lord bears his holy arm, or empowers his servant, in the eyes of all nations, so it's a public international event, and the house of Israel receives the gospel. Or at the time the house of Israel receives the gospel. Now let's see more properly how the greater Marvelous Work ties into this which most people believe in the Church, is the restoration of the Gospel and the priesthood through the Prophet Joseph Smith. All by definition that was called the beginning or commencement, or the foundation of the Great and Marvelous Work in the Book of Mormon, it is not itself, in Dark and Covenants, and is not itself called the Great and Marvelous Work, anywhere. Because that is the restoration of the House of Israel, by definition, in the Scriptures. And when that they, they shall come, that they shall believe in Christ and worship the Father in his name. Now, it's talking of the house of Israel, sometimes specifically of the Lamanites or sometimes of the Jews. Um, never really specifically of the ten tribes, but it would just say on all the house of Israel, all the tribes or something like that. And then there are people who have the idea that the Jews are not going to believe until Christ comes down on the Mount of Olives and shows himself to them. Well, that's a misreading of Zechariah, which says that he will save the house of Judah first, so that the house of David does not magnify itself against Judah, which is what the religious Jews, who are 10% of Jewry, do today. They look down their noses at the secular Jews for having abandoned Judaism. Well, guess what? They're the ones, it says in Zechariah, the house of David and the house of Jerusalem, they're the ones who mourn for him when he shows himself to them on the Mount of Olives. But all these scriptures, including Christ, say that the majority of Jews, the Jews, the house of Judah as a whole, as Zechariah says, will be converted first, will believe first. How? Through these scriptures that come forth. When that day shall come that they shall believe in Christ and worship the Father in His name with pure hearts and clean hands, which they haven't had until then, and look forward not anymore for another Messiah, which the Jews do, and so do the Lamanites, then at that time the day will come that it must needs be expedient that they should believe these things. What things? Well, the things Jesus has been saying, or or the teachings in 3 Nephi, or the the teachings of the Book of Mormon, including the large place of the Book of Mormon, which have the words of Christ in fullness, in their completeness, as we read in uh, 3 Nephi 26, which we don't have today. We just have this abbreviated version, the current Book of Mormon. And the Lord will set His hand again the second time to restore His people from their lost and fallen state. Wherefore, He will proceed to do a marvelous work and a wonder among the children of men. So the marvelous work and a wonder is in parallel with setting His hand the second time. So it's one of the same event. Wherefore, He shall bring forth His words to them, which words shall judge them at the last day, for they shall be given them for the purpose of convincing them of the true Messiah who was rejected by them. The people of the house of Israel are restored from their lost and fallen state, when the Lord performs a great and marvelous work, when he sets his hand again the second time, when he reveals his arm, when the kings and queens of the Gentiles uh, respond to the hand and ensign and perform their mission of bringing them home to Zion in an exodus. Are you beginning to put together the domino pieces? It just keeps compounding until it's so totally incontrovertible. incontroversible, incontroversible you, you cannot argue with it. You can argue all day long, but that means then you don't believe what, it, what the scripture is actually saying. And behold, there shall be many at that day when I shall proceed to do a marvelous work among them, that I may remember my covenants which I have made unto the children of men, that I may sit again the second time, my hand again the second time, to recover my people to the house of Israel. There you have again the greater marvelous work, or the marvelous work, same thing, parallel with setting the hand again the second time, which is when Israel comes in response to, to the root of Jesse, bringing them from, in an exodus from all four directions of the world. You know, people should have done this. People should have analyzed and searched these scriptures in the church and had this knowledge a long time ago. Why, why does it take me, some upstart from out of town, you know, to come and set people straight? I mean, I take no credit for that, but I'm just pointing out what these scriptures are actually saying. What we've had since the time of Joseph Smith. How come we've missed it all this time? Why? Because, because of precepts of men. Because people take things out of context. They proof text. They find a scripture that, think they, that they think supports their belief and run with it. They have not searched as the Lord has commanded from the beginning. The day that he shall set his hand again the second time to recover his people. Now this is from Jacob 6 on the heels of Jacob 5, the allegory of the olive tree. To recover or restore his people is the day, even the last time that the servants of the Lord shall go forth in power. This is the day of power when the army is empowered, when Zion is empowered, to nourish and prune his vineyard. And after that the end soon cometh. And how blessed are they who have labored diligently in his vineyard Those are the servants that the Lord of the vineyard commands the one servant to go and gather to help him graft in the natural branches when the entire tree is full of fruit and none of it any good. I keep repeating that over and over, but none of us seem to get that because it's never taught in gospel doctrine. It'd be too embarrassing, right? And how blessed are they who have labored diligently in this vineyard. That's the the servants of the sons of Ephraim, the kings and queens of the Gentiles, the 144,000, the watchmen, how cursed are they who shall be cast out into their own place and the world shall be burned with fire. At this very time you have the deliverance when he sets his hand the second time when he performs his great marvelous work, when they come in an exodus and the destruction is going on at the same time. Summary. The greater marvelous work occurs when the Lord sets his hand again the second time to restore his people and destroys the world by fire. Prove me wrong. Mm-hmm. I'm challenging you, challenging anybody to prove this wrong. You can't do it. It's as clear as day. That they have just said it so plainly that we've never put together the pieces. Nephi says he speaks plainly. I mean, how more plain can it be? First Nephi twenty two. After our seed is scattered, the Lord God will proceed to do a marvelous work among the Gentiles, that is, among us, where well, the Ephraimites have come down through the Gentile lineages, which shall be of great worth unto our seed, that is, them, the house of Israel. Wherefore it is likened unto their being nourished by the Gentiles, and being carried in their arms and upon their shoulders. That's the kings and queens of the Gentiles. How often they keep referring back to Isaiah 49 to the kings and queens of the Gentiles because they are so concerned about what's going to happen to their posterity in the end time. They want to see them saved. They've been praying for that. They've been pouring out their hearts to the Lord that someday, even though they've now gone to apostasy, they've seen that, in the end they'll be recovered and restored. And so they want a blessing from the Lord that, that that would be done. But somebody has to do it. Who? We do. So the Lord made provision for that. So again, we have the, the marvelous work paralleled with the return of the house of Israel in an exodus from the four directions carried there by the kings and queens of the Gentile us. So the marvelous work didn't happen in the time of Joseph Smith. It happens in the end time because where are these Gentiles now? These kings and queens of the Gentiles. They're not political kings and queens. They're the spiritual kings and queens. They're the ones who nourish the house of Israel. On the model of King Hezekiah, which we, which we did in one of the earlier lectures, 35:21, in that day for my sake shall the Father work a work. Now, when you see the word "work," then you know that's a key word referring to the great and marvelous work, which shall be a great and marvelous work among them, and there shall be among them those who will not believe it. Not believe what? That it is what it says it is, which is the restoration of the house of Israel, not the restoration of the gospel. That's why they don't believe it, because they've been indoctrinated to think the other way. See how clever these precepts of men are in dissuading people from believing, as we read in 2 Nephi 28. It's all about that. 2 Nephi 28, precepts of men. Therefore they don't believe, they don't get it, they fight against it in the end. Seven curses come upon them. In the end they deny Christ, even. All because of precepts of men. Those who introduce these precepts, by the way, have a lot to answer for they've caused an awful lot of confusion. And publish these things, and people publish what they publish, and pretty soon that's gospel. Everybody believes that, and it's not even true. Although a man shall declare it unto them. Well, somebody has to set them straight, and that would be the servant. And I don't know who that is, and I don't go there in my thinking. But behold, the life of my servant shall be in my hand. Therefore they shall not hurt him, although he shall be marred because of them. The marring is appears in chapter 52 of Isaiah verse 14 for which he is healed as it says here therefore they shall not hurt him now here Jehovah is speaking of his servant I mean Jesus is speaking of his servant as Jehovah speaks of his servant in Isaiah so here you see that Jehovah is I I mean Jesus is Jehovah it's the same person he's speaking as Jehovah in Isaiah the life of my servant shall be in my hand Therefore they shall not hurt him, although he shall be marred because of them, yet I will heal him. Now that is quoting from Isaiah 57, not from Isaiah 52. So here we have a combination of Isaiah 52 and 57. So Jesus is bringing several scriptures together from Isaiah here. For I will show unto them that my wisdom is greater than the cunning of the devil, because the devil is behind his marring. And so are the people who don't believe it. They think that by, you know, disclaiming the messenger, they're going to destroy the Lord's work. Can't do it. Therefore, it shall come to pass, same, same chapter, that whosoever will not believe in my words, and those words in their fullness are in, on the large plates of Nephi, which haven't come forth yet, which the servant is going to bring forth, who am Jesus Christ, which the Father shall cause him to bring forth unto the Gentiles. So we have three separate persons, Jesus Christ, the Father, and the Servant. Unto the Gentiles, that is to us, and shall give him power that he shall bring them forth unto the Gentiles, because he's going to reveal his arm in power, that's the day of power. It shall be done, even as Moses said, they shall be cut off from among my people who are of the covenant. So the servant too is one likened to Moses, not the one likened to Moses, but here he's likened to Moses because those who do not believe the words of Christ that he brings forth are going to be cut off just as Moses said. In fact, in DNC 103 verses 15 through20, he is one likened to Moses also, who leads the saints back to Jackson County. And my people who are remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles. That's the Jacob-Israel category in the book of Isaiah, shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of them, as a lion among the beasts, and as a young lion among the flocks of sheep, who, if he go through, both treadeth down and teareth in pieces, and none can deliver. Be devoured, to be devoured or trodden down by wild animals is a covenant curse. And their hands shall be lifted up upon their adversaries, and their, all their enemies shall be cut off. When, in the same context of the servant bringing forth the words of Christ, which many do not believe, who are cut off. So when they are cut off, what are they going to do, do you think? Take it lying down? No, they are going to fight i are going to fight back. And that's when you see these enemies cut off. Cut off means cut off from being cut off among my people who have the covenant. says in verse 11. And also cut off from life because all these wicked people are going to be destroyed. 3 Nephi 21 And then shall the work of the Father work again, commence in that day, even when this gospel shall be preached among the remnant of this people. Now we're talking about the house of Israel. The Lamanites today. Verily, I sent you at that day when the work of the Father shall commence or commences among all the dispersed of my people, even the tribes which have been lost, the ten tribes which the Father hath led away out of Jerusalem, yea, the work shall commence among all the dispersed of my people, my covenant people, that's the formula, the covenant formula, my people, his God, their God, with the Father to prepare the way whereby they may come unto me, that they may call on the Father in my name. What is this with the father now? Why is he introducing that into into the mix? Because, remember the three Nephites went to the father's kingdom, and the nine went to the son's kingdom? Remember they were caught up into the heavens, the three Nephites were? The 144,000 have the father's name written on their foreheads? So now, when people, or when the servants of the Lord rise to the seraph level, to the translated level, when they're translated on that level, it's all about the Father's actions on that level. It's all about the Father. They answer directly to the Father at that point in time. Yea, the work shall commence among all those dispersed of my people with the Father to prepare the way whereby they may come unto me, to Christ, that they may call on the Father in my name. So in other words, full conversion to Christ among all those who had forgotten all about him. We never knew how to do that. Therefore they remain under a curse, under the judgment under judgment instead of under mercy. Yea, then shall the work commence with the Father among all nations in preparing the way whereby his people may be gathered home to the lands of their inheritance. And they shall go out from among all nations, and they shall not go out in haste nor by flight, for I will go before them, saith the Father, and I will be their rearward. So there again, you have Exodus imagery. They come home in this Exodus because the Lord and the angel of the Lord accompanied them in the Exodus out of Egypt. We go back to Jackson County in an Exodus. There too, in, that, in D&C 103, 15 through 20, it, it refers to, the, to this, uh, the Lord going before them. Same thing. All part of one big scenario happening at the same time. All these events happening concurrently Or like dominoes falling. Bang, 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 bang. They all fall. They all happen at once. In a very rapid sequence. Summary. The Lord's great and marvelous work occurs when the Lord's servant brings forth Jesus' words to the Gentiles, at which point the kings and queens of the Gentiles carry the house of Israel home. This is from these scriptures we've just been reading. From exile in the new exodus among all nations. From among all nations while the wicked are destroyed. It's like Lot coming out of Sodom, led by the angels out of Sodom, as the destruction of Sodom was happening. The very same scenario. The Lord's word causes a great division. What will be unto the Gentiles if it so be that they harden their hearts against the Lamb of God? Which Gentiles? Well, the ones he's talking about. Who are they? The ones who stand to be cut off among the covenant people. Not Gentiles out there and remember Nephi's definition of hardening the heart, to Laman and Lemuel when he chastised them for not, not asking the Lord, not, you know, not turning to the Lord to uh, tell them what, what his fa- their father's dream was all about. They said, the "Lord makes no such thing known unto us." They didn't inquire for themselves from the Lord. And he said to them, "Well, how can you harden your hearts like that?" That's his definition of hardening hearts. So when the servant comes forth, there'll be many who are not inquiring for themselves. I mean, just apply that definition right there. And what do they do? They end up fighting against Zion. All A very sad situation. That's why the gospel turns from them to the house of Israel, because they reject it. As the Jews rejected it, when it went to the Gentiles in the first place. First should be last, and the last should be first. For the time cometh, said the Lamb of God, that I will work a great and marvelous work among the children of men, here another domino piece, a work which shall be everlasting, either on the one hand or on the other, either to convincing them to peace and life eternal, or unto the deliverings of them to the hardness of their heart and blindness of their minds, unto their being brought down into captivity and also unto destruction, both temporally and spiritually, according to the captivity of the devil. So both physically and spiritually, of which I have spoken, where else does it mention the captivity of the devil, you know? Alma twelve nine 9-11, if you stay with the lesser portion of the gospel, it's not enough in that time. You'll be taken captive by the devil. And this is what is meant by the snares of hell. The snares of hell, I think that's what it said. And also you meet that when, when, when we don't, those who don't receive the, la, the greater portion of, of the gospel, the words of Christ, of them it also says that they will be taken captive by the devil. You think they know that they're being taken captive by the devil? I don't think so. They think they're right. So here you have this dichotomy and this defines the same thing we've been talking about. The great and marvelous work to life in Isaiah, it all comes to a head in a great kind of polarization of people into a covenant of life and a covenant of death. The harlot and the virgin daughter of Zion. The wicked city and the righteous city. It's a sub- simultaneous thing. At some point, it all comes to a head and they separate. And the one is destroyed and the other delivered. And that's what this is talking about in context. And it's talking about it in an end-time context. Because Isaiah entirely is an end-time context where the idea of a great and marvelous work comes from. The time speedily cometh that the Lord God shall cause a great division among the people, and the wicked will he destroy, and he will spare his people, yea, even if it so be that he must destroy the wicked by fire. Because the wicked, because the wicked are destroyed by the, the elements in general, by floods and by calamities and earthquakes and plagues, and by fire, fire out of heaven. The great of destruction is likened to a flood of fire in the book of Isaiah. However, Isaiah also says, That the Lord's remnant, those who are gathered in the Exodus, walk through the fire. The same fire that destroys the wicked delivers them because they walk right through it because they are led by the Lord himself and by those on a translated level, people who have power over the elements, as Moses did, as Enoch did. The great division happens the moment that they reject the, the new things that the Lord brings forth, which we discussed before The time soon comes that the fullness of the wrath of God shall be poured out upon all the children of men. Yes, but where does it start? Upon his own house, because it it starts with the apostasy of his own people and all the patterns of the past. They're the catalyst. For he will not suffer that the wicked shall destroy the righteous. And by the apostasy of the Lord's people, it has to get to the point that they actually will fight against the honest believers. They will fight against those servants of the Lord who are trying to do this, bring about this latter day work and say, Oh, no, that's not of God. The Lord has already done his work, or some other excuse. Because of their precepts of men, because of what they believe, and because they, they want to hold fast to this paradigm in which they're entrenched. And they can't get out of it. It's like the frog in the hot water, they don't know how to get out of it. And so they fight against it. It's, it's a preservation, it's an it's instinct of preservation, like the scribes and Pharisees. They intuitively knew that John the Baptist or Christ were going to somehow overturn things. And so what do they do? They fight to the death to maintain their old paradigm. So this wickedness has to come to a head to that point, as I mentioned before, and as we've mentioned over and over, so that they're actually fighting against Zion now, fighting against the Lord's work. And then what happens, as I mentioned, because the righteous or the remnant or the servants of God, they have to rise above the evil, right? They have, to be, they have to look to the Lord and trust in Him that they can be empowered above all this opposition and evil. So they both have to come to a head. And then, when it gets to that degree, where their, their lives are in danger, and their lives are on the line, and they're willing to put their lives on the line in the cause of Christ, then the Lord empowers them, and the curses of their covenants with the Lord come upon their enemies. And that's when this great reversal happens. It's a beautiful pro- program. <laughs> you just have to have the guts to go with it, right? Wherefore he'll preserve the righteous by his power, even if it so be that the fullness of his wrath must come, and the righteous be preserved, even unto the destruction of their enemies by fire. There it is again. Wherefore the righteous need not fear. I guess fear is one of the greatest enemies. It destroys your trust in the Lord. I tell you, if you practice trusting in the Lord in the face of fear and opposition, you feel the empowerment come on. You feel it from Him. It's like an equation. To the degree you overcome the fear, to that degree are you empowered. And this empowerment is cumulative. It stays with you. It continues ever stronger and stronger to resist more and more evil. It's a secret. It's a grand secret between the Lord and His servants. Because they are so committed. They are so committed they'll do anything. They'll suffer anything. Read Lecture 6. We cannot inherit the glory of those ancient ones, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and others, without doing the works that they did, which some interpret one way, some another. But the works that they did was based on their total commitment to serve God. Their sacrifice of their entire will, there was nothing, nothing left to sacrifice. And how few people, how many, are actually willing to do that? I don't know very many. But somebody has to. It's predicted that we will, right? It's there in black and white. And God's Word is always true, no matter what men say. So, He will preserve the righteous by His power, even if so be that the fullness of His wrath must come. So these are two simultaneous things. Their destruction and your deliverance, and the righteous be preserved even unto the destruction of the enemies by fire. Wherefore the righteous need not fear, for thus said the prophet, they shall be saved even if it so be as by fire. There it is, staring us in the face. When are we taught this in gospel doctrine? Isaiah 28. Jehovah will rise up as he did on Mount Pratsim, and be stirred to anger as in the valley of Gibeon to perform his act, his unwanted act, and do his work, his bizarre work. Because the work, the great and marvelous work, is twofold, right? It's the deliverance of the righteous, or the righteous remnant, those who repent, and the destruction of the wicked. They are two houses of the same coin. When did he rise up on Mount Pratsim? Mount Pratsim means the mount of breaking forth, when he broke broke forth upon the wicked and consumed them by his fire. When the Valley of Gibeon, when the sun stood till, and Joshua's army fought in the strength of the Lord. We discussed these scriptures, a number of them, in our previous lectures. But here, I'm bringing it up again because it's part of the great and marvelous work. Therefore scoff not, this is addressing Ephraim's prophets in Isaiah 28, lest your bonds grow severe, for I have heard utter destruction decreed by my Lord Jehovah of hosts upon the whole earth. I haven't seen that in the Gospel Doctrine Manual. Well, I mean, I'm not questioning what they do. I mean, they have their reasons for what they do. But sometimes you ought to get things straight, right? First, 2nd Levi 29. Shall come to pass that my people, which are the house of Israel, shall be gathered home into the lands of their inher- possessions, or inheritance, and my word also shall be gathered in one. Because... They are converted because the words of Christ that come forth and other sealed books, as Nephi says in I think it's first Nephi fourteen, verse fifteen, other sealed books come forth that have been kept in reserve in their purity to come forth in the last days. These books have the power to convince the house of Israel. But they are resisted by the majority of us Gentiles. So that's when the gathering home occurs, when they believe and then they're gathered. That's what we've seen in the sequence of events thus far. And I will show unto them that fight against my word and against my people who are of the house of Israel. That is against the Jews, the ten tribes, and the, the Lamanites of today. Because now they're coming into the church, into the gospel. That I am God, and that I have covenant with Abraham that I would remember his seed forever. He's going to make himself so personally and manifestly available to them that they can't deny. Who are these people? Paul says, his people whom he foreknew, he knew them before. All they have to do is accept him as the Messiah. It's almost as the the evangelical Christians say, they basically just have to accept him because they're already an elect people. And then they're saved. (laughs) Well, us Gentiles have a little further to go than that. But they are of the house of Israel, his people whom he foreknew. He knew them before, and they knew him before. When before? Well, before they came here. Summary. The Lord's great and marvelous work causes the great division among the people, at which time the house of Israel is gathered home from exile, and the wicked are destroyed. More domino pieces. We've already seen fight against Zion, but let's let's look at a closer definition here. It's all part of the same domino puzzle here. And every nation which shall war against the O House of Israel, you can see that building up in the Middle East today. The world is going with the Arabs, with Islam. It's even making inroads into this country. It's a weakness in us, because we're unwilling to stand up for what's true and right. We're willing to believe all this propaganda and these distortions. And, and the news is not give, being given to us in facts. It's giving us distortions of the facts. Because the media is the liberal media. It's been bought out by those who are anti-Christ, who are fighting against Zion right now. Every nation which shall war against the house of Israel shall be turned one against another, and they shall fall into the pit which they dig to ensnare the people of God, of the Lord. All that fight against Zion shall be destroyed. There, that's in parallel with warring against thee, right? And that great whore who has perverted the right ways of the Lord... Well, wait a minute. The great whore perverted the right ways of the Lord by taking plain and precious parts out of the Scriptures, right? And many covenants of the Lord have they taken away, it says, in the same breath. First Nephi. And what have we done? What have we done with our precepts of men? Wherever we've introduced precepts of men, we too have perverted the right ways of the Lord, right? Right? So, somebody needs to take responsibility for that, or they're part of the Great War. Get it set straight. If they're wanting to do that, then guess what? They're part of it. Yea, that great and vulnerable church shall tumble to the dust, and great shall be the fall of it. And the word fall is one of the key words that are cut off. Cut off and fall identify the Babylon category in Isaiah. But the reason Nephi and others in the Book of Mormon can't call the great whore Babylon as Isaiah does because it was still a political power at that time, so they resort to this imagery of, of the great abominable church, which is what it is, what Babylon is anyway. There are only two churches in that day: the church of the Lamb and the church of the Devil. But that—that's after the division. That's not right now. We can't just assume that we are that church, Church of the Lamb. We're not. We're the Church of Jesus Christ the of Latter-day Saints, but we're not the Church of the Lamb by Book of Mormon definition. It's after that division happens, then those who stay with the Gospel, who are valiant, they become the Church of the Lamb. They become the saints who are empowered, the holy ones. Saints are holy ones, who are literally holy. We've covered a lot of this before, but it's just reiterating the same thing over and over in these scriptures. It shall tumble to the dust. In other words, Babylon goes to the dust in chapter 47 of Isaiah. It becomes a non-entity. It goes into chaos, into a chaos mode. Dust is a chaos motif. Dust, chaff, you know, all those chaos motifs that identify in, in my books that are in Isaiah. And great shall be the fall of it. It'll be like... The flood, like Sodom and Gomorrah. For behold, the righteous shall not perish, for the time surely must come that all they who fight against Zion shall be cut off. So there's fall and cut off in parallel. Practically in parallel. thirty five six. Wherefore, after they are driven to and fro, this is speaking of the house of Israel, the Jews, the ten tribes, and Lamanites or Remnants of the Nephites too, of course. For thus saith the angel, Many shall be afflicted in the flesh, and shall not be suffered to perish, because of the prayers of the faithful. Remember what I said? Their ancestors prayed that their descendants would be preserved. And they got their wish. They got that blessing from the Lord. So the Lord arranges it. Through us. They shall be scattered and smitten and hated. Nevertheless, the Lord will be merciful unto them, that when they shall come to the knowledge of their Redeemer, they shall be gathered together again to the lands of their inheritance. There is the sequence. They apostatized and were exiled, they are converted and they are gathered. The opposite of what, happen, what happened anciently. And blessed are the Gentiles, they of whom the prophet has written, not all the Gentiles, but which, the kings and queens of the Gentiles, were like a father to them, were ministering foster fathers, nursing mothers. They of whom the prophet has written, that's Isaiah, for behold, if it so be that they shall repent and fight not against Zion. So that means that these kings and queens of the Gentiles too have to repent. We all have to repent. Nobody is exempt from repenting. We have to inquire of the Lord for ourselves individually. We can't rely upon anybody's word in that day. That's what... Harold B. Lee, I remember him saying it in conference, don't, you can rely upon my testimony now, but don't, you have to get your own, because someday you'll have to totally rely on that. It'll be that confusing. Among us. For if so be that they shall repent and fight not against Zion, because those who harden their hearts, who don't inquire, they are going to end up fighting against Zion. I mean, read between the lines here. Put it all together. Worship God with your minds, Right? not just with your hearts and your strength. Worship him with your minds by searching the scriptures and putting these pieces together. And do not unite themselves to the great and vulnerable church. Well, they were not part of it to begin with. But guess what? They harden their hearts. They don't repent. And they, in the end, they do unite themselves to the great and vulnerable church. But if they repent, they shall be saved. For the Lord God will fulfill his covenant which he has made unto his children. And for this cause... The prophet has written these things for our benefit. Well, we should have gotten all of that from Isaiah in the first place. I no, know, but the Book of Mormon has to point it out to us over and over and over, and we still don't get it. Wherefore, they that fight against thine and the people of the covenant of the Lord shall lick up the dust of their feet. That's those who harden their hearts, who do not repent. In that verse, Isaiah 49, 23, there are two categories of Gentiles spoken of, as there are all through the Book of Mormon. Those who harden their hearts and those who repent—that's the dichotomy. That happens at the greater marvelous work. When the servant brings forth the words of Christ, they go two ways. They harden their hearts, and they—or they, re- they repent—and that's the everlasting division. Happens right there. On the one hand or on the other. It's everlasting. From <laughs> then on, there's no—it's there's, beyond the point of return. You've had enough time to, to repent. You haven't. You're out of here. Wherefore, they that fight against Zion and the covenant people of the Lord, because there are those who remain the covenant people of the Lord, who are valiant in the testimony of the truth, or the testimony of Jesus, who don't buy into the precepts of men, shall lick up the dust of their feet. And the people of the Lord shall not be ashamed, for the people of the Lord are they who wait for him and trust in him. Waiting is a big motif in the book of Isaiah. Follow it all the way through. Look it up in the concordance of Isaiah. I have a book there with a concordance in it, a translation concordance. For they still wait for the coming of a Messiah. Well, so do we. We're waiting for the coming of the Lord, Christ. He's going to come in glory, but he also comes to us individually. That is something to wait for. His promise is that he will manifest himself to us to the degree that we serve him, He's bound to manifest himself to us. He says that we will make, we'll come and make our abode with thee, with you. And he that fighteth against Zion, both Jew and Gentile, or you might say Latter-day Saint and anybody else, both bond and free, both male and female, shall perish. For they are they who are the whore of all the earth, for they who are not for me are against me, saith our God. And it shall come to pass that my people of the house of Israel shall be gathered home unto the lands of their inheritance, and my word also shall be gathered in one. And I was shown to them that fight against my word and against my people. Now here it's another nuance, right? Fighting against Zion here, was in, a moment ago, was in parallel with fighting against Zion and fighting against the covenant people of the Lord, verse 13. Now here you have fighting against my people and against my word. So this fighting against is the common motif of what? Fighting against Zion is is exemplified or defined as fighting against the Lord's word in the first place, when the Lord's servant brings forth the words of Christ, and other sacred records are brought forth. Truth will come out of the earth as with a flood, it says in the book of what, Moses, and righteousness will come out of heaven, and truth come out of the earth, and will flood the earth as with a flood in that day. And against my people who are of the house of Israel, the Jews, Lamanites, ten tribes, keep remembering that, that I am God and that I have covenant with Abraham that I remember his seed. Well, we saw that. Okay, let's take a break there. Did we have a summary? Yes. Those who are destroyed in that day are the great and church of the devil and those Gentiles and others who don't repent but who instead join the great and church and fight against Zion. All right. Are we all agreed on that? I mean, how obvious is it? Okay, let's take a five-minute break and see you here then. <laughs> Reading in 2 Nephi 10, Thus saith the Lord God, When the day cometh that they shall believe in me, that I am Christ, then I have covenant with their fathers, that they shall be restored in the flesh upon the earth unto the lands of their inheritance. It shall come to pass, that they shall be gathered in from their long dispersion from the isles of the sea, from the four parts of the earth, and the nations of the Gentiles shall be great in the eyes of me, saith God, in carrying them forth to the lands of their inheritance. Yea, the kings of the Gentiles shall be nursing fathers unto them, and their queens shall become nursing mothers, wherefore the promises of the Lord are great unto the Gentiles, for he hath spoken it, and who can dispute? I mean, didn't we just read this a moment ago? No, we didn't. (laughs) This is yet another Domino piece. I mean, it's just reiterating, reiterating, reiterating. And we still don't get it. So, the promises of the Lord are great unto the Gentiles, that's to us if we will do our part, if we will be those saviors on Mount Zion, if we will bring those House of Israel, you know, lineages back and graft them into the olive tree, if we will fulfill our birthright role of Ephraim as a savior to his brothers. These sayings, this is uh, now 3 Nephi 16 again, these sayings which he shall write, that's the um, Christ speaking to the Nephites, shall be kept and shall be manifested unto the Gentiles, that is to us, that through the the Ephraimites that have come through the Gentile lineages, that through the fullness of the Gentiles, what is that? Remember that? That is the seed of Ephraim, or the offspring of Ephraim, where Jacob lays his right hand on Ephraim's head and blesses him that in, in the end time, because those are patriarchal blessings concerning the end time, his offspring would become the fullness of the Gentiles. We see it also in Romans 11, where Paul talks about the fullness of the Gentiles and of 1 Nephi 15 where the gospel is restored to the the fullness of the Gentiles or to the Gentiles and from the fullness of the Gentiles it goes to the house of Israel. So there are four instances in the scriptures. So it's speaking of a specific category of Gentiles namely those who fulfill their birthright role. That through the fullness of the Gentiles the remnant of their seed the house of Israel Who shall be scattered forth upon the face of the earth because of their unbelief, I think speaking specifically of the Jews here, may be brought in or may be brought to a knowledge of me, their Redeemer. To a knowledge just about him? No, to a knowledge of him, right? Where they know him personally. And then will I gather them from the four quarters of the earth. We read that in the beginning, Isaiah 11, verses 10 through 12. And then will I fulfill the covenant which the Father hath made unto all the people of the house of Israel. Now from 1st Nephi 15, And now the thing which our father meaneth concerning the grafting in of the natural branches through the fullness of the Gentiles, there it is, that is through the offspring of Ephraim, is that in the latter days when our seed shall have dwindled in unbelief, yea, for the space of many years and many generations after the Messiah shall be manifested in body unto the children of men, then shall the fullness of the gospel of Messiah come unto the Gentiles, That's through the prophet Joseph Smith, and from the Gentiles unto the remnant of our seed. And at that day shall the remnant of our seed know that they are of the house of Israel, and that they are the covenant people of the Lord. And then shall they know and come to the knowledge of their forefathers, and also to the the knowledge of the gospel of their Redeemer, which was ministered unto their fathers by him. Wherefore they shall come to the knowledge of their Redeemer, and to the very points of his doctrine, that they may know how to come unto him and be saved. Okay, so hasn't this already happened? This is not talking about Isaiah, but it's talking about to the house of Israel coming to the knowledge of the gospel, which we which we have read about in connection with Isaiah, right? But the gospel was the fullness of the gospel was restored through the prophet Joseph Smith. So all this time, some have been attempting to take it to the house of Israel, but without much success. The Jews have by and large not accepted it. Many Jews who have have gone back to Judaism. The Ten Tribes, some are coming into the church now in the the North countries and Eastern Europe and are getting patriarchal blessings saying, but not very many, just a few. The same with the Lamanites, only a few. I mean literal Lamanites, not just mixtures of the House of Israel. So this these events are waiting to happen, and when will they start happening? Well, we've been reading it all along when the servant is empowered to bring forth the words of Christ and other records, and the House of Israel at that time is convinced, and the kings and queens of the Gentiles who come from among us, so this restoration had to take time so that there, would be, there could become kings and we could become kings and queens of the, of the House of Israel. To the house of Israel by accepting the fullness of the gospel and applying it in our lives. So there was a waiting period from the time of Joseph Smith till this final end time scenario, so that we could prepare to fulfill our obligations and learn how to do that and become to the, come to the knowledge, awareness of it. And that's why it says in the end that they come to the knowledge of their forefathers now it's speaking generally or en masse, so to speak, and to the knowledge of the gospel of the Redeemer in the context of coming to the knowledge of their Redeemer and the very points of his doctrine. The very points of his doctrine, and that's a word link to the true points of his doctrine in the third Nephi, which Jesus speaks about, which implies that there are other points of his doctrine that are not true or pure. Right, So when the servant fulfills his mission, in other words, these points are clarified. And they become pure points of doctrine then, when the words of Christ come forth. Not this, you know, precept of men version. That they may know how to come into him and be saved because it is these true points of doctrine in which are taught and is given the knowledge of how to come into Christ through the endowment of his power that happens when that that doctrine is taught, and it hasn't been taught in its fullness. It's based in the Davidic covenant for the most part, and we don't know and understand the Davidic covenant and its proxy principle of serving as proxy to others. And when we do and learn all that and apply it in our lives, then we are given knowledge more knowledge about it because the Lord then starts revealing things to us individually and personally so we rise to a new level and that's the thing that empowers us and until that day we'll not be empowered it's as simple as that because we're not doing it we haven't figured out these two points of his doctrine enough so that we are being empowered today why aren't we converting Lamanites en masse didn't the sons of Messiah do that? Don't they need converting? Don't the Jews need converting? Why aren't they convinced? Because we're weak. We're weaklings. We're just laboring in, in, in the lesser portion of the gospel, thinking that is the, the whole portion of the gospel. And it's not. We haven't applied these principles in our lives sufficiently to gain that empowerment. And we're willing to do that. We're willing not to do that, I mean. We're willing to just, you know, wallow around in our present mode and it's going to come back on us. We'll be judged because we have the scriptures that tell us. But we rather trust in somebody else's word to tell us what, what we should do. Or what we should know. Or regurgitate back what they say. Rather than coming to it ourselves through our own individual searches, which we are individually commanded to do. And which we'll be judged by when the Savior, you know, on that judgment day, confronts us with it. 3 Nephi 16. Thus commanded the Father that I should say unto you, That day when the Gentiles shall sin against my gospel and shall reject the fullness of my gospel and shall be lifted up in the pride of their hearts. We discussed this in another context, but here it is. And uh, they're full of these other, you know, these different versions of evil. And then it says, Behold, said the Father. The Father? Yes, because now things are going to a new level. The level of the hunters, the level of the translated beings, the 144,000 with the Father's name on their foreheads, I will bring the fullness of my gospel from among them, from among us. And then will I remember my covenant which I have made unto my people, O house of Israel, to them. And I will bring my gospel unto them. And I will show unto thee, O house of Israel, that the Gentiles, us, shall not have power over you, as we had in the past. But I will remember my covenant unto you, O house of Israel, and ye shall come into the knowledge of the fullness of my gospel. I mean the real fullness, not... What passes as the fullness right now. And then the words of the prophet Isaiah shall be fulfilled, which say, Thy watchman shall lift up the voice. That's when Isaiah is fulfilled. It's all in the end time. With the voice together shall they sing. Well, I knew that from Isaiah because this seven part structure of Isaiah transports or transforms the entire book of Isaiah into an end time context, as a single end time scenario. And so you have all these books of people who apply Isaiah back in time. It's all historical. It's this. It's some cute symbolisms. and But they never get to the meat of the... They never get to the real message of Isaiah. Which these scriptures say. They totally get it in the Book of Mormon. They totally understand Isaiah. You can as rely on the Book of Mormon as you can on Isaiah himself. They're like this. Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice that's now another name for the servants of the Lord that appear in the book, book of Isaiah, the same servants in other scriptures as we mentioned, the same kings and queens of the Gentiles. We, we, we covered that in one of the previous lectures, right? To, With the voice together shall they sing, for they shall see, see eye to eye. We had this beautiful dream of this, where this group of Jewish people in our last lecture, right? They began to sing this new song. When things go to a higher level, music is everywhere. It's, it's joy and gladness and song. It's a new song. It's a new reality. It's an empowerment. It's out of this world. You want to sing. You want to praise God spontaneously. Completely with your whole soul. Break forth into songs. Sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem. You have been waste. For the Lord hath comforted his people. He hath redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth, shall so see the salvation of our God. It all starts with the bearing of his arm. And, and I will remember the covenant which I have made with my people, that is, the house of Israel. And I have covenant with them that I would gather them together in my own due time. That's that expression, mine own due time. Follow that all the way through the scriptures and you'll see that it's a, a very end time scenario. That I would give unto them again, the land of their fathers for their inheritance, which is the land of Jerusalem, speaking now of the Jews, which is the promised land unto them forever, said the Father, the Father again. And it shall come to pass that the time cometh when the fullness of my gospel shall be preached unto them. That's not when he appears on the Mount of Olives. This is the, this is the house of Judah that believes first, not the house of David that sees him on the Mount of Olives and then recognizes that they, that they rejected him. The house of David looks down on the house of Judah magnifies himself against him. So the Lord is going to save the house of Judah first so that these guys won't, you know, look down their noses at the others anymore. That's justice. God's justice. Which is the promised land unto them forever, said the Father, and shall come to pass when the fullness of my gospel shall be preached unto them and they shall believe in me that I am Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and shall pray unto the Father in my name. How about that? There it is. It's a a prophecy. How do you think that's going to happen? Then shall their watchmen lift up the voice. Well, there. It's going to happen because of the watchmen. Lift up the voice. And with the voice together shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye. These watchmen have all had the same cosmic vision, so of course they see eye to eye. They've seen the end from the beginning. They know where it's at. You can't convince them otherwise. Then will the Father gather them together again and give unto them Jerusalem for the land of their inheritance. That's what Joseph Smith predicted, that when all nations are at war with one another, the saints would flee to Zion, and the Jews would flee to Jerusalem. And all those who would not be at war with one another would have to flee to one of these two places. And then shall they break forth into joy, sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem. He's, he's quoting what he quoted in in 35:16. He's saying it over. For the Father hath comforted his people, he hath redeemed Jerusalem. The Father hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all nations. Why? Because the servant answers directly to the Father because he's, translated, he's a translated being. And so are all the 144,000 on the heels of that. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of the Father and the Father and I are one because we come to the Father through whom? Through Christ. He's the only way that we can come to the Father. So first we, we come through him. And then eventually we answer to the Father, we become his sons and daughters. The Father and I are one, and then shall be brought to pass that which is written, Awake awake again, and put on thy strength, O Zion, put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem. Holy city, holy city now, a completely sanctified city. For henceforth there shall no more come unto thee the uncircumcised and the unclean, Because before that, it's been a mix of the two, and you couldn't always tell who's who. Shake thyself from the dust. Arise, sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the banter of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. You know, you were bound, you were in bondage. You are rising from the dust at the same time that Babylon, the harlot, goes into the dust. She descends from her throne into the dust, and you ascend from the dust onto your throne. So also resurrection is implied here because the awaken arise imagery. It's it's in Isaiah fifty two there. Is resurrection imagery as well? For thus said the Lord, you have sold yourselves for naught, or for the things of the world, right? And you shall be be redeemed without money. But also Isaiah says you have been sold, you have been sold without price, is my translation. Sometimes it wasn't always up to you. Like DNC 103, 15 through 20, we shall be led back to Jackson County out of bondage by one like to Moses. Out of bondage? What bondage? Well, by bondage to the powers that be, right? And they're implementing it every day, believe me. So the redemption also is going to be free. The Lord is going to counter that bondage with him freeing us, as we read at the end of chapter 49 of Isaiah. Verily, verily, I say unto you that my people shall know my name, yea, in that day they shall know that I am he that doth speak. To know the name is synonymous in Hebrew prophetic thinking with knowing the name, the holy name, that the, priest, the high priest uttered once a year in the Holy of Holies when the Lord would appear to him in person. So to know his name means that now that each person has a personal connection with their Savior on that level of the high priest. And that they shall they know that I am he that does speak. In other words, there are now the wise virgins. they are now the virgins that know their Lord, so they are invited into the marriage supper. Those who don't know him are not let in. Right, my friend? And then shall they say, thirty-five twenty 20 again, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings unto them. So, again, he starts quoting Isaiah. Who is the one that brings good tidings to them? Chapter 52 of Isaiah, the servant. And other servants, but beginning with the one servant. That bringeth good tidings unto them of good, that publishes salvation. So there you have peace, good, and salvation in synonymous parallels. Publishing peace, bringing good tidings of good, and publishing salvation. And of course, salvation is the Lord Himself. That saith to Zion, "Thy God reigneth," or "Your God rules." You know, Hebrew doesn't have these these and thous. That's just English translation. That's just the King James. It's all you in Hebrew. And shalt and wilt and all that. (laughs) It's not there in Hebrew. It's out of respect, of course, to the Lord, because in the, in the King James English, that was spoken of to royalty and people like that. And then shall the cry go forth, Depart ye, depart ye, go out from thence. This is the Exodus. Touch not that which is unclean. Go ye out of the midst of her, out of Babylon. Be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. Well, that's the kings and queens of the Gentiles, bringing the house of Israel again as vessels to the Lord, as it says in uh, chapter 66 of Isaiah. For you shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel shall be your rearguard. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently, because he's the one initiating the whole thing. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Right, after he's is marred and healed. As many as were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred, more than any man, his form more than the sons of men. So he's. He's unrecognizable as a human being, even, at some point. What a price to pay. What a decent phase that is. What a law that is to keep. It's akin to the Lord's crucifixion and and, and, and scourging. His visage was so marred more than any man, his form more than the sons of men, so shall he sprinkle, but that's a a mistranslation. Shall, shall, Shall he astound? Many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths. That's why they shut their mouths. Because they're astounded. and For that which had not been told, they shall consider, shall see in what they had not heard, they shall consider. It says in verse 4, 20, beginning of verse 44 also, as many as were astonished at thee. They're astounded. Sprinkle? It doesn't appear there. It's not in the context. Sometimes you can tell when there's two choices of a word in Hebrew, they have two different meanings like they do in English here. Sometimes you tell by synonymous parallels which is the correct one to use. So my translation uses astound. Summary. The house of Israel gathers home in a new exodus from among all nations, should be plural, when they believe in the Lord their Savior, at which time the Lord's servant fulfills his mission, and the words of Isaiah are fulfilled. Types of the great and marvelous work. In the Book of Mormon. Now, the Book of Mormon prophets were taught taught after the manner of the things of the Jews, or the the methodology of the Jews they learned. So they were very careful in their choice of words. I found that out when doing a revision of Jonathan Chinari's Hebrew translation of the Book of Mormon, which which took two years. I did a review. He came back and revised it. Then it was still not good enough, so they gave it to me to revise, the translation department. And... I found that rhetorically it was the most, indeed the most correct book of any book. It was always consistent in its use of, uh, of terminology, except when it quoted the King James. Four passages from Isaiah, like I said, one word is translated into three different ways by the King James translation. But in itself, the Book of Mormon is rhetorically, in its use of words, the most correct book that's when I gained an intellectual testimony of the Book of Mormon besides the spiritual testimony that I had gained in Israel when I first read it. So when Book of Mormon prophets talk about great and marvelous works here and there and the other place, they don't just use terms like that willy-nilly. If they know that there's a future great and marvelous work and something in their history they call great and marvelous, then you know that that typifies the future great and marvelous work. Otherwise they wouldn't use it. They wouldn't use those words. They'd use different words. So that's what we find in these few scriptures that I have here. Alma twenty six, the sons of Messiah. Our brethren the Lamanites I think this is who this is Ammon speaking, right? Our brethren the Lamanites were in darkness, yea, even in the darkest abyss. But behold how many of them are brought are brought to behold the marvelous light of God. And this is the blessing which hath been bestowed upon us, that we have been made instruments in the hands of God to bring about this great work. Behold, thousands of them do rejoice and have been brought into the fold of God. Yea, they were encircled about with everlasting darkness and destruction. Remember when we read earlier, the Lamanites in the end time were going to be brought out of darkness and destru- and, um, and uh, what was the other term used? Anyway, out of darkness into the light out of darkness and destruction, because the destruction comes upon those in the end time who don't convert. But behold he has brought them forth in his everlasting light, into his everlasting light, yea, into everlasting salvation, and they are encircled about with the matchless bounty of his love, yea, and we have been made instruments in the hands in his hands of doing this great and marvelous work. You know, there, there you have it. There you have a type, not only of the great and marvelous work, but there you have a type of the fullness of the gospel in the Book of Mormon. These sons of Messiah are living the fullness of the, of the gospel and applying it in their lives. By doing what? By being saviors to their brethren of the house of Israel. It's only when we do that and go to that degree that we are really living the fullness of the gospel. Otherwise, we're just living a lesser portion. Here's another one. Fourth Nephi. And there were great and marvelous works wrought by the disciples of Jesus. Well, what were they? Insomuch that they did heal the sick, raise the dead, cause the lame to walk, the blind to receive their sight, the deaf to hear, and all manner of miracles did they work among the children of men, and nothing did they work miracles, save it were, in the name of Jesus. Well, who's doing that today? Right? So that too, is categor, excuse me, that too characterizes what the future Great and Marvelous work that the Scriptures talk about, that Isaiah talks about, the Book of Mormon talks about, is going to be like. That those 144,000, or the servants of the Lord, those kings and queens of the Gentiles, are going to do these miracles, these very same miracles. How do we know that? Because it uses the terms Great and Marvelous work in that context, typifying the future Great and Marvelous work according to the manner of the Jews. You never dare cite something from the past unless, you know, in those terms, if it typifies something in the future, that's described, that's described in those terms. Did the sons of Messiah do that? Likely. And here, now the other side of the coin. And behold, the Lamanites have hunted my people, the Nephites, down from city to city and from place to place, even until they are no more. And great has been their fall. There's the word fall again. Babylon falls, and great and marvelous is the destruction of my people, the Nephites. That's the part where the one group is delivered, the other is destroyed, in the very same context. It's also part of the great and work, his bizarre work, the work that he doesn't want to do, but he has to do it anyway because it's a consequence of people's actions. And he also has to come to the rescue of his servants and bring the curses of their covenant upon their enemies. And it came to pass in the thirty and fourth year. I think we have time to read this. In the first month, on the fourth day of the month, there arose a great storm, such as one as never had been known in all the land. And there was also a great and terrible tempest. And there was terrible thunder, insomuch that it did shake the whole earth as if it was about to divide it asunder. And there were exceeding sharp lightnings, such as never had been known in all the land. In the city of Zarahemla did take fire, city of Marunah had did sink into the depths of the sea, the inhabitants thereof were drowned, and the earth was carried upon the city of Morunih, and in the place of a the city there became there became a great mountain, and there was a great and terrible destruction in the land southward. Well, there's destruction in the great but great and terrible also appears in the book of Malachi, right? The great and terrible day of the Lord. So when the great and terrible day of the Lord happens in the end time, here is a type and shadow of it. But behold, there was more great and terrible destruction in the land northward. For behold, the whole face of the land was changed because of the tempests and the whirlwinds and the thunderings and the lightnings and the exceeding great quaking of the whole earth. And the highways were broken up and the level roads were spoiled and many smooth places became rough and many great and not- notable cities were sunk. Many were burned and many were shaken till the buildings thereof had fallen to the earth and the inhabitants thereof were slain and the places were left desolate. Well, this is not going to happen in our day. Well, you think the destruction of the world in the end time, the destruction of the wicked, is not going to be, be like this? It's going to be worse than this. Because at the same time, there are the armies of the Assyrians doing their thing, with their nuclear holocausts. And, and people are taken to bondage and made slaves, and, and people are... things too, too bad to, to relate. Satanic cult stuff. And it came to pass that it last for the space of three days that there was no light seen, and there was great mourning and howling and weeping among all the people continually. Yea, there were great there were groanings, great were the groanings of the people, because of the darkness and the great destruction which has come upon them. Summary. Types of the Lord's great and marvelous work in the past tell us that it includes, one, deliverance from darkness when the house of Israel converts to the Lord, and two, utter destruction among his people who apostatize. Those are our two choices too as us Gentiles repent or harden your heart serve as saviors or join the great and abominable church Doctrine and Covenants if you will not be saviors you will be as salt as lost of savor. if the scriptures say it shouldn't you believe it conclusion using Isaiah's method of predicting end time events based on the domino principle this is Isaiah's method of doing it he does it all over the place I unravel it in my books. Basically, I do it all for you, because you haven't done it. In which which Isaiah predicts the same events in different combinations with other events. Nephi, Jacob, and Jesus all quote and build upon Isaiah's words when predicting the restoration of the house of Israel. All those domino pieces, right? All based upon this passage from Isaiah, that passage from Isaiah. Only by connecting all the domino pieces does their end-time scenario become clear. Because it hasn't become clear because we've latched onto just one piece or two pieces at the most. That's why we say a Bible, a Bible refers to the time of Joseph Smith. No, it doesn't. Read it in context. It refers to us. Us. What happened then was a type and shadow of it, perhaps. But no, it's an end-time context where the Book of Mormon talks about it. Quoting from Isaiah, the great marvelous work in the same chapter. Only by connecting all the domino pieces does their end time scenario become clear. Until we do that, we can't see the whole thing. We can go back to our old paradigm of what so-and-so teaches or what that, that person said. It doesn't cut it. Those old precepts of men are going to die and you can die with them if you want, but it's all going to come clear. All the true points of his doctrine are going to come forth. Events Nephi, Jacob, and Jesus draw on that Isaiah predicts are as follows. One, the Lord's servant, his ensign gathers Israel and Judah, Isaiah 11:10-12. The Lord sets his hand as servant again the second time, Isaiah 11:11. 11, 11. The kings and queens of the Gentiles gather the house of Israel, Isaiah 49:22 and 23. The Lord bears his holy arm in the eyes of all nations, Isaiah 51:9, 52:10. The Lord performs his great and marvelous work, Isaiah 29:14. The great and marvelous work causes a great division, Isaiah 65:13-15, and other places, too many to mention. Nations and Gentiles who fight against Zion are destroyed. Isaiah 29, 7-8 The house of Israel comes to know the Lord their Savior. Isaiah 49, 23, and 26 And other places. The house of Israel comes out of obscurity and darkness. Isaiah 9, 2-3, 2-3 And 9, 49, 9 And other places. Israel returns from exile in a new exodus. Isaiah 11, 15-16 51, 9-11 52, 11-12 Those are just the ones we've read. There are others. The Lord's servant fulfills the words of Isaiah. Isaiah 42, 1-7, 49, 5-12, 52, 13-15. He's the catalyst for this whole restoration of the house of Israel, for this whole scenario happening. And with that, with that we'll end this, this, uh, this scenario. This, uh, this scenario. We'll, <laughs> we'll end our end time scenario. <laughs> and um, The series. And thank you all for attending and for your desire. To know the scriptures, it's wonderful to see that people are sincerely searching and and feeling a void, and so they're looking for more, and they're not getting it where they think they could get it. And so, what is the Lord's response in that situation? He's bringing forth so many people with visions, and dreams, and it's like Isaiah predicts. And what do people say to those people? Oh no, don't don't see a vision, F- foresee a fraud, prophesy, you know, vain things to us. Isn't that hasn't that been our responses to people who? We're having visions today, by and large. Isaiah predicted that too, so here we are. So what are we going to do? What are we going to do? You know, that's up to us individually. Thank you. This concludes Lecture 8, Book of Mormon Prophecies from Isaiah. Be sure to visit IsaiahExplain.com as well as IsaiahInstitute.com to learn more about Isaiah with Dr. Avraham Gileadi.